If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multi-Amory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about how to increase your own personal well-being. Most of what we're speaking about today is based on research in positive psychology as championed by Dr. Martin Seligman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and former president of the American Psychological Association. We will include some self-exploration exercises that have been clinically shown to increase well-being and combat depression and anxiety. And we'll also discuss some criticisms of positive psychology and how those ideas can also be incorporated to help improve your life. Yeah. All right. I mean, why does this matter? <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of reasons why this matters, especially in relationships, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that we talk a lot on this show about happiness in relationships and trying to have happier mm-hmm. relationships, but just having a happier self uh, is, I think, a big part of that, right? So why does well-being actually matter here because it it reminds me of this phrase like in order to love somebody else you need to love yourself first i like how you so what what do we think about that i like how you say it in the sort of like in order to love yourself first like you it it instantly makes you go into that kind of voice when you say a quote like that i (laughs) know exactly like well i feel like that gets tossed around so often and honestly i think that one of my issues with that quote is just in like, as a culture, we don't even really know what love is in itself. Mm. And so then to tell someone, well, you need to love yourself um, first, like it's already problematic, right? It's like you need to feel this ephemeral, indefinable, uh, kind of confusing thing that comes in many, many different forms. But I'm just going to tell you, just love yourself. Um, yeah, somebody asked but, us that at yeah. our live show, and mm. <laughs> we couldn't even answer the question, <laughs> right. which is really funny right. to me. Yeah. I mean, I, so I feel like I feel like that's the first problem with it is the fact that it's like sure I can be like okay, sure, I'll love myself, but like what does that actually mean? Does that mean treating myself nicely? Does that mean masturbating a lot? Does it mean, you know, feeling good all the time? Does it mean feeling happy all the time? Like and I I personally don't think it means any of those things, but I think that's the problem with that common piece of advice is that it's just a little bit too vague and unattainable, I think. Yeah, it it makes me think of well, just the fact that we use love to mean so many different things, right? Like, I love pizza is a very different yeah, sort of thing than I love myself versus I love you, mom, versus I love you, lover, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. all of those mean very different things, even though we call them all the same thing. So, I think that's another problem with this statement is just this kind of, well, I think that self-love is a very different thing from loving another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it's yeah. that it's this sentence makes it out as if it's this kind of one-to-one thing, I guess. But I think what I'm excited about in exploring this episode is that um, in increasing one's well-being, we're not just talking about 
just, you know, self-care and self-love, because I feel like those two things are very important, but they're, um, I think we've already all gotten that advice. Um, (laughs) And I think what is really interesting and some of the stuff that we're going to be exploring today are more concrete things, more about thought patterns, I think, than about Mm -hmm. trying to change your feelings about yourself or things like that, but like specific thought patterns that you can change in order to have increased well-being and maybe increased well-being is a part of your self-love or your self-care. Maybe it's not. We also talk a lot on this show about our relationships being better when we approach them with less need. And I think that the one thing this this saying of, you know, you need to love yourself before you can love somebody else. One thing it is kind of getting at is this idea that if you go into a relationship with the hope that they're going to fix everything for you and they're going to be the thing that, that makes you happy or makes you feel more stable or completes you, you know, all those things we've talked about are kind of these cliches from our movies that are actually quite unhealthy to look at relationships that way. So I think that also looking at well-being is really important to see that, yeah, our external factors like our relationships aren't going to be the thing that give us well-being, that that is something that is more of a personal work, more of something that we can work on ourselves. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so what's the first so, part of this? Okay, so the first part of this um, is we're going to start by talking about the way that we interpret events in the past. And the core concept here is this concept of learned helplessness and learned optimism. Basically, what this is is based on a whole lot of studies, and we could make this episode a super, super technical one, uh, but instead we won't, but we will include some links to articles and things like that if you want to read up more on this uh, in the episode notes. But basically, through a lot of studies, um, found that well-being is very strongly related to this sense of helplessness or optimism. And -hmm. helplessness, you know, could also be called pessimism. But basically, it's the difference between something bad happening and thinking, this one specific thing outside of myself happened right now that was bad versus thinking this bad thing happened that must mean that my life is bad it will always be bad and that all of the world is bad like this right Wait, it's, can i argue right, with you a little bit yeah go for it okay okay because my argument is when i was reading about this because i i feel that when i was growing up i like i got a lot of learned pessimism i made a joke earlier that it was learned realism but it's i'll, I'll say it like it is like it's, i think i got a lot of learned pessimism growing up. However, I don't think I got a lot of learned helplessness. Like I think I got actually Hmm. a lot of learned autonomy and independence, but matched with pessimism. So I, I would argue with redefining learned helplessness as pessimism. Okay. I feel like there, it's a little bit, some subtle differences there. I mean, I guess that's probably why they use the term learned helplessness in the literature instead of (laughs) learned pessimism. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, that in this, though, at least from my understanding of it, the the reason why it's helplessness is kind of more the idea that this is always going to be bad and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, that that's sort of the key component to uh, a lack of well being. Um, to mm-hmm. you know, for people reporting themselves like not not feeling as good, not feeling fulfilled. Well, it's, sometimes it's challenging to kind of differentiate like the event from the emotion behind the event. And I don't know, is that, do you think that based on this, that's a learned thing? Like getting your emotions involved regarding an event, that's just like, well, 
I feel X because of this, and therefore I feel helpless because of this, I guess, is is that the argument for that that's a learned thing? Yes. So, okay. I'm going to start off with a quick preface here, saying that with, with psychological studies, the way that they work is obviously they get samples of however many people, and they do a study and they try their best to control for other factors so that you're just looking at, at specific things. Now, that said... You know, you'll have a study where it says, oh, in, you know, when doing this particular thing, it decreases the rate of whatever by 25% or 50% or 75%. That doesn't mean that it's 100% effective for everybody because, right, it's Mm -hmm. still only 50% or 75%. It just means that compared to a baseline of doing nothing, you have, you're more likely to have a positive effect and that it's very statistically significant. So I just want to preface everything that we're going to say in this episode with that understanding of how psychological studies work. Okay. Because I'm, I can see people right now going, oh, but in my case, X, Y, or Z. And yes, that, that might be true. Hopefully these things would still be helpful for you, even in those cases. Um, but just if we are saying that something is helpful with like depression or anxiety, that doesn't mean it's some bulletproof cure and that if you haven't done this, it's your own fault that you have these things. Anyway, just want to start with that clarification. Uh, well, and do you have another question about that before I answer I just your question? Was gonna, yeah, no, I was just going to ask like, why, why is it good to be optimistic? What's like a good thing about well, being optimistic in one's life? Right. So optimistic, being optimistic and learning how to be optimistic, because it is something that has been shown that it can be learned, that Mm -hmm. in addition to just reporting higher well-being, this has also been linked to things like uh, recovering from injury for athletes, and actually less likelihood of getting an injury as an athlete has also been linked to optimism, Uh, lower risk of death, specifically from heart disease, uh, greater success in career and greater success in academics have both mm-hmm. also been linked to specifically learning optimism. And so in answer to your question before, um, that yes, a big part of this is in looking at the way that we interpret events from our past. So uh, this is taken from some techniques that were developed for teaching to children in schools and have actually since been developed and is actually taught in the U.S. military. Uh, Mm. Some companies are also starting to employ this now. Um, But basically the way it works is this program taught kids in school to look at things that could happen in their lives, you know, uh, imagined situations because you're doing it as a class and then you're asked to apply those to things in your real life is to look at those and to look at the conclusions that you've drawn from things that have happened and then to ask the question, is there another explanation? Is there Mm. a possible other explanation for this? So one example is bullying, right? A bully comes up, says, you're a jerk. You're a stupid head. Give me your lunch money. Right. And you could come away from that thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm, a jerk, people are mean to me, right? You could make those sorts of thoughts. And often as kids, we do. We do feel that way. It's like, oh gosh, this is what the world is like. It's awful. Yeah. And so in this exercise, the kids were asked, what's another possible explanation for it? And it's like, well, um, maybe they had a bad day because they just lost their baseball game and they were feeling upset and so they needed to take it out on someone else. Right. One possible example, or maybe, 
maybe they don't have any friends and so they want to take it out on other people to make themselves feel better or right you, you basically it's just this it's like coming up with possible other solutions not saying that yeah. those are necessarily the answer but just that you're taking away some of the strength of this one belief that's negatively affecting you which is that no one likes me and i'm worthless yeah right and it's kind of placing it on something else yeah. yeah, that's cool. And so another example of this would be you go to lunch and you see mm-hmm. that all your friends are sitting at one table, but they didn't leave a space for you and they don't seem interested mm-hmm. in having you sit with them. You could think, oh, no one likes me. My friends all hate me like this. But instead, the kids are asked to look for other explanations like, oh, well, all of my friends are on the volleyball team and I'm not on mm-hmm. the volleyball team. So maybe they were actually having a team meeting and they excluded me because of that and not because of this other thing, right? That it's just that, just kind of looking at other possible explanations. Okay. So yeah, that's cool. I wanted to take a moment and think about how this could apply to some of our dating lives as we talk about on this show. And I think the, the easy one that comes to mind is being rejected. Right? Yeah. So this could be let's let's take the example of being rejected for being polyamorous, say. Let's say you're polyamorous mm-hmm. and you're talking to someone you're interested in and you mention that you're polyamorous and then they say, I'm 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 not interested or yeah, that's weird. Yeah. That I think without realizing it, a lot of us can go to this place of, oh shit, no one's gonna love me because I'm polyamorous or you know, no one, no one's going to date me or this thing makes me unlikable. Maybe I should hide it from more people. Maybe I should wait longer to talk about it. Maybe dating's not worth the effort, right? There's all sorts of conclusions we could draw from that. So the exercise would be, and I'm going to put this to the two of you, what would be some alternate explanations for that? Um, they don't want to date someone polyamorous because it's triggering to them due to the fact that their father cheated on their mother when they were young. Yeah, that's a great example. Dead, Dead, you got anything? Well, I mean, I feel like the direction I would take it in is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And rather than trying to come up with different explanations for the other person's motivations, more coming up with different explanations about myself, like... So as in the story about myself is not, oh, I'm unlovable and no one's going to love me, but more of like, oh, this means that I have the opportunity to find someone who is interested in this. Mm-hmm. Um, like, clearly that person was not the right person. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that still counts, if that's if no, that's yeah. the correct answer or no, not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Different, different explanation yeah. for sort of, it's about challenging the meaning that we give to events that happen. Right. Mm, because as as humans, we are meaning making machines. Right. Mm-hmm. We one of the reasons why we were successful evolutionarily is believed to be the fact that we give meaning to things that don't mm-hmm. in themselves have meaning, but we give meaning to them. It's why we have lore. It's why we love storytelling. It's how we created religions. Right. All, all of these things. And those have really worked to keep us together as a society and to help us, you know, progress culturally. But there are, it is kind of this double-edged sword where it, it also mm-hmm. can cause these sorts of uh, negative meanings to be attached to things when they don't need to be and they might not serve us to be. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So this all kind of it sounds a little woo-woo to me, but <laughs> apparently it's been studied with really good results. Um, apparently, like, 
there are studies involved with taking time away from academia to teach positive thinking in kids. And then it's been shown to actually increase test score test scores dramatically um, compared yeah. to like other control groups. Yeah, this, so that's this one really was cool. Really cool. It was this exact yeah. technique yeah. of teaching them how to to question the meanings behind mm-hmm. events and other reasons for them. And that what I love about this is that the study not only showed what they were aiming to show, which was that this would increase well-being, because when they tested the the kids' well-being later on, it was increased. Those kids also had, I think, half the rate of depression and anxiety as they started going through puberty. This was done like in kind of middle or you know elementary, middle school age children. So they Um, were taught to like do this over and over again and make it a part of their life. Yeah, that it was an actual unit Hmm. that they were taught in school. So time was taken away from whatever, you know, history or math or maths for our British listeners out there. Jesus. Um, (laughs) Uh, But what was really cool is that not only did these kids report better well-being, but they actually also scored better on standardized test scores in the control groups, right? Mm. So something that actually took time away from academic learning, which you would think would negatively affect test scores, actually improved them. So it's just another example of how this kind of thing does affect lots of other areas of our life, like I was saying about academic achievement and also um, success in your career, because it's easier to stay motivated and get through challenges and have higher energy toward the things that you're doing. That's awesome. Um, the other really cool thing about this is that they followed up this study a couple years later after the study was concluded and found that that group still scored higher on standardized tests and had less incidents of depression and anxiety than the control groups, even a couple years after you know the program was, was stopped. They only did it for that one year. Wow. So that's also very cool that these this is something that you can actually learn. It's not just like, oh, I'm in a cool program, so that's making me more motivated right now. Yeah, it's creating healthy habits. Yeah, healthy mental habits. Yeah. Cool. So the next thing we wanted to move on from is from there is into the present. So yes, have I, I imagine many of our listeners have heard of the Myers-Briggs personality type test, right? Uh, I'm a, an INFJ, according to that test. I don't know if you guys know what you like i'm an i'm an intj and i've retaken it multiple times like throughout my adult life and it's stayed pretty much the same and enfp i'm not sure something like that Uh, i don't know i don't remember what you are i know we've talked about this before we've talked about it a lot yeah yeah. well but you know what we should all take those tests and post about it in the patron only facebook group Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We so all the all the Patreon supporters can talk about their Myers Briggs types. Yeah, um, let us know, guys. So what I what I actually wanted to bring up though is a different way of looking at yourself compared to the Myers Briggs. So the Myers Briggs test, just quick background, is based on type theory, which is something that was created by Carl Jung, and it's cool. It's fun. I have a lot of friends who are really into it. Um, it's it, you know, reminds me a little bit of other personality sorting things, like which uh, Hogwarts house are you, or uh, your Enneagram number, or right, there's there's lots of these different things, or even horoscope, I suppose, although that one's not based on taking tests, that one's just when you were born. Um, 
But the idea is that it categorizes you, right? That each of the four letters is on a spectrum between two different things like introversion and extroversion or um, uh, what is it? Judging or, or perceiving, right? Mm-hmm. There's these different things. So they're all kind of on a spectrum. You're one or the other. Uh, and obviously, depending how far in one direction or the other you are is also significant. But essentially, it's for, uh, I guess, just kind of finding a type for yourself. And the test was developed intentionally to not change. It was meant to evaluate what they believe is sort of this in type theory is that this is your personality and that's just what you're born with and that's who you are for your life. And it can be useful in exploring things about yourself. Um, And it's also well-being neutral. And what I mean by that is that whether you're introverted or extroverted, it's not like one is better than the other. It's not like, oh, I'm stronger in this score, right? This is just about kind of identifying where you are. And while that's cool, it's not really geared toward being able to actively do anything to increase your well-being with it. Like maybe it'll help you choose your career or people Mm -hmm. use it in the workplace. Um, The Myers-Briggs test has received a lot of criticism in psychological literature, um, as do a lot of things that kind of try to type people like that. Uh, But what we want to talk about is uh, an alternative, another test that's a newer one. Uh, And this one is called the VIA assessment, and that's V-I-A. And the VIA assessment is something that was made uh, in the early 2000s, so quite a bit younger than the Myers-Briggs, which has been around for decades. And what this one does is it measures 24 different character strengths and shows you which ones are your top ones, which ones are your core strengths. So unlike the Myers-Briggs, in this, your traits are not opposed to each other. It's not like, oh, I have a strength in extroversion or introversion, for example. It doesn't work like that. Just each of these is just, you have more or less of a certain strength. And the point of it, though, is not about identifying like problem areas and trying to improve those, like a lot of tests out there. But this one is focused on figuring out what your strengths are so that you can actually focus on using those strengths more to your advantage. Mm. And these are character strengths, by the way. This isn't just like, uh, I have a strength for, you know, word processing or, right, I have a, a strength for taking standardized tests, right? It's not, not those kinds of, of strengths. <laughs> these are more character strengths. Mm-hmm. So... Perhaps where we could get started here, and we are going to talk about some links to where you can take these tests and learn more about all of this in the show notes and also later in this episode. But right now, uh, we all took this test, and I wanted to start by talking about what each of our top five strengths are, because that's what this test is meant to show you, is what your top five strengths are. Uh, Do you want me to go first? Yes, you should, for sure. Okay. So my top strength is judgment critical thinking and open-mindedness. That's, that's all one strength together, followed by creativity, curiosity, appreciation of beauty, and gratitude. Who's next? Uh, so my top five were uh, also curiosity or interest in the world. Um, this one, which I found is interesting, but it's capacity to love and to be loved. Um, there were a lot of questions on the test that were about, you know, basically like how much does it sound like you that you agree with the statement that 
I'm very aware of love being in my life or I'm able to give love to other people, which I thought were, was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So that one shot up to the top. I also got the judgment critical thinking one, um, the love of learning. And um, the last one that I got was perspective wisdom, which basically just means I'm a relationship coach. <laughs> <laughs> it pretty much falls in line with what I do with my life these days. Yeah. Dedicate the wise is what we call her. Mm, they do they do call me that in certain circles <laughs> what about oh, you man. i i got appreciation of beauty and excellence as my first which kind of makes sense because it's about i guess it, appreciating the arts. art and music yeah. yeah exactly um and then capacity to love and be loved was my second one as well um and then social intelligence which i agree with like being good in social situations and being able to like read a room Mm. um and then self-control which is funny because that's something that my mother instilled in me at a very young age how to control myself and it's very interesting that that came in here uh so heavily and prevalently and then humor and playfulness i do think that i can kind of add a little (laughs) bit of I don't know, fun to a situation. So, well, you certainly crack us one. up pretty often. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. <laughs> I was pleased to hear that I did that when I was in Tokyo with you too. Yeah. Many times. Um, <laughs> so what I think is most valuable about taking this assessment and why I'd really recommend our listeners to take it. And if you're in our Patreon group, I'd really recommend that you take it and then post about it and let us know. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that knowing what your top strengths are, it automatically helps to give you, like, here's a bunch of tools at your disposal. Here's a bunch of things that you're already good at that you can use when you're having difficulty or when you're facing a task or a situation that you're dreading specifically. Um, I think I found in my life that particularly as it pertains to my relationships, like if I'm feeling insecure or if I'm feeling jealous or if I'm having a hard time with a partner or I'm coming up against a bunch of conflict, it's really funny because when I saw like what my strengths were after taking this assessment, I was like, oh, it totally makes sense that like, so my number one is curiosity or interest in the world that often in my meditation practice, if I'm experiencing negative emotion, like the most effective tactic for me is to come at it with like curiosity of like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what that feels like. Oh, it's this weird, like pulsing thing in my chest. Oh, look, it's like shifting and moving and moving to a different part of my body. Oh, that's really interesting. And that like, if I can bring this curiosity to it, it kind of creates the psychological distance between myself and my feelings um, so that it's not so overwhelming. And then the second one, the fact that my number two is the capacity to love and be loved Um, you know, I started thinking about that and thinking like throughout all of my experience of being in polyamorous relationships, like the worst times, like the times that I've struggled the hardest or felt the most jealous or the most insecure that I've never had. But it's like never come with a sense of like, oh, no one loves me. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I'm always able to still tap into that. Like, yes, I know I feel like shit right now, but I still know that there's a lot of love in my life. Um, And So those have been the things that have gotten me through those situations. For somebody else, those may not at all be their tactics at all. You know, for instance, like Jay, since you also have this strength in like judgment and critical thinking and open mindedness, like maybe for you, it might be bringing more of a sense of like super rational thought to an emotional exactly that is things like that. and, And that is usually the most effective thing for me. And I think people listening to this show might already be like, oh yeah, that makes sense for Jace. But if that kind of, well, let's step back and like, look at this. Let's take apart the pieces. Let's compare it to other things. Like, let's kind of put it through these little 
scientific tests to try to yeah to yeah. figure or, out or something. maybe a thing like if your strength is like emily humor and playfulness maybe that's the thing that gets you through feeling of like having a really difficult time is finding mm-hmm. the humor in it or finding a way to make a joke out of it and what i think is funny is like i think that for our listeners who do take this test you may find like i did it's like oh this is all stuff that i've already been doing naturally in these situations but yeah. I think it's really good to get that reinforcement of like, oh, yeah, but this is something that I'm good at and this is something that I can rely on. Um, so I think it's great. I think it's great to at least have that top five or you can even go down the list and see your six or seven and you can kind of come up with like tools and tactics for the next time that you're feeling not so great in a relationship or you're feeling insecure um, in order to kind of help pull yourself out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's and that is a great exercise to do even just hypothetically. Uh, is just to take a moment and, I mean, maybe not totally hypothetically, but just to think about a specific thing that's difficult that you have to do on a regular basis rather than just saving it for like, oh, yeah, I'll try to remember this when I'm going through a breakup or something like that. But if just this is a thing I have to do regularly and I always dread it to say, is there a way that I could use one or, one or more of my top five strengths to approach this thing in a different way? And to then make it more enjoyable for me, make it easier for me to do, and then also probably will make me do it better. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about which of these strengths are actually tied to overall well-being. Um, mm-hmm. So there was another researcher at the University of Pennsylvania who ran a study to see which of these specific strengths were the most significantly, significantly related to one's well-being. Um, the ones that they found had the most effect were um, a sense of hope, a sense of gratitude and also love. I'm, I'm assuming that's, that that's the love and the receive love, to love yeah. and, and be loved. Yes. That those are, you know, if those are in your top strengths, I, I guess the implication is that you're most likely to have a strong sense of well being. Is that well, case? something, something to clarify about this test because every single score is just kind of linear and you're finding mm-hmm. your top five now, just because those are your top five doesn't mean that your other ones are necessarily low, right? This is something mm-hmm. that ideally, if you're someone who does work on your personal development, all of these scores would be getting higher through your life and that, you know, yeah. all of these scores would be pretty high. So that just because something was last on your list doesn't necessarily mean you're bad at it. This isn't that kind of test, right? These aren't opposed to each other. Um, but so what this study did was looked at um, measurements of well-being and looked at these character strengths and tried to, uh, you know, mathematically isolate the different characteristics from each other or the different strengths from each other and found that being stronger in those ones were, were the most significantly related to well-being. Mm-hmm. Now, just because those aren't in your top five doesn't mean, oh, crap, my well-being must be bad then because <laughs> I didn't have those because all of these are related to well-being. Well, except for one, but we'll get to that in a moment. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Okay, but apparently the individually or individually the strongest correlation with well-being was between gratitude and love of learning and gratitude is the clear winner yeah so gratitude was the one with the highest correlation to well-being yes exactly which is very interesting and kind of brings us back to the top yeah of why we're doing this why we're talking about this and interestingly, well, well yeah. yeah, yes. But the thing is, they found that the character strength of humility, of being humble, was the only strength that was not significantly correlated with well-being. Mm-hmm. And that's good because, according to all of our assessments, humility is like really low down on the list for all three of us. <laughs> now that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean, like I said, doesn't We're mean like dickheads. We don't have that strength. It just means it's not as strong as the other things. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I know. I was surprised by that. I was like, but I'm not like super, you know, self, oh, self-aggrandizing or whatever. But yeah, but at the same time, I guess it's not. Emily, I feel honestly, I feel like you're very a very humble person, except for certain arenas, and those arenas are like karaoke karaoke (laughs) and Mario Kart. And like, yes, you're right. I am the best. Where you're totally okay to not be humble. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely true. Everywhere else, they're the like everywhere else. You're very humble, but That's those are like sweet. your two areas where you're fine being completely arrogant. Yeah, yeah. this one's interesting too because I actually read that that this these findings about humility not affecting well being have also been replicated in other studies or have been found in other mm-hmm. studies, um, including some that were done in Japan actually. Oh um, really? That finding, where which is a very like, like humility very focused humble. culture, but yeah. also in research here found that humility whether you have it or not, doesn't have much of an effect, if any at all, on your actual well-being and your health. Um, Now, it could have an effect on how annoyed people are to be around you, so it still could be (laughs) a worthwhile trait to, you know, to work on or to have, especially depending on the culture that you're in. Um, But anyway, fun thing. Let's go back to gratitude. So how do you increase your gratitude? So Martin... Seligman said this, 
He said, okay, tonight and every night for the next seven days before you go to sleep, write down three things that went well today and why they went well. They don't have to be big things. They could be like you had a terrific Caesar salad at dinner or saw a beautiful sunset or you listened to a good lecture. So write down three of those things that went well today and why they went well. That's all there is to it. So this so do that, people. Yeah, this is a really cool one. Because I know that in sort of the positive psychology, positive thinking kind of world out there, gratitude gets thrown around a lot. And I think that um, it, it can kind of sound like things like The Secret that don't have any scientific mm -hmm. backing behind them. But actually, gratitude does. What's really cool about this one is that this particular way of increasing gratitude um, has been scientifically studied many times with very consistent results, which is pretty cool. And that that's um, when people do this exercise, when they're tested six months later, report lower levels of depression, anxiety, and a greater sense of well-being. And this yeah. one is so easy to do too, right? It's so, it just takes that little bit of time. And I know on this show, we've talked about the five minute journal before, which is, has kind of a variation on this, this. included, yeah. but just this part right here doesn't need to be any more complicated than this of writing down three things that went well today and why they went well. And I mean, I've gotten a lot of value out of doing this exercise. I did the five minute journal thing for a long time and I, I did find it was actually quite incredible, very simple and, but had quite a profound impact on me. And I think it's interesting. We addressed this a little bit, I think, in the in our episode we did with Jessica Graham. But but that's the thing. It's like people can get very opposed to gratitude exercises for a couple of reasons. One of them being it can be like, oh, that sounds like the secret or some kind of woo-woo, crunchy, hippy-dippy bullshit, and I'm mm -hmm. not going to do that. <laughs> or the one that I've come up against more often is people making the argument of like, well, but if I'm like constantly just trying to be grateful for the things that I have, that must mean I'm complacent and that I don't want to improve my life, that I don't want to accomplish anything, that I'm not striving for any kind of goal, that I'm just settling and trying to be happy with what I have. Um, and like, I hear that argument. I get it. I would make the argument that I think that it's important to maintain a sense of both in your life, that it's, it's important to maintain a sense of wanting to improve and wanting to accomplish things, but also being able to check in and have gratitude for what it is that you have in your life. However, what I do love about this exercise is that it really breaks it down to be very, very simple. I mean, when I was doing the five minute journal, I would write at the end of the day, I'd write down something like I saw a gecko today. <laughs> Jason, when we were in Hawaii, like I wrote that one down a lot. Um, there were a lot of geckos. Where it's like, I saw a gecko today. Like I had a glass of wine. That was really good. Or like I had a good conversation, a funny conversation with a stranger, like super simple things that aren't so broad as like, Oh, I'm so glad I have a roof over my head or that I have a place to sleep. And it's good to be grateful for those things. But I think that it really helps to highlight the fact that every day there can be so many good, simple things, even when you have a shitty day, you know, even when you have a shitty day, but you, at the end of the day, you can still be like, well, at least I saw a cool gecko today. <laughs> um, yeah. It sounds it's insignificant and silly, but it does have an impact. Yeah. It just trains you to be aware of those things. Um, mm -hmm. something that I really wanted to talk about in this episode, but we had to take it out for time is about selective attention and how mm. 
as humans, we really don't take in all of the world. We're very much focused on what we're expecting. Uh, and so we'll tend to miss very obvious things if we're not, you know, if we're too focused on something else. And I think that this type of training helps us to be more aware of those positive things so that we can see them when they happen, which I think not only leads to well-being, but I think it also helps us to identify opportunities that yeah. if you are more tuned in to looking at positive things or looking for and noticing positive things that happen, that I think it can actually make us more likely to see, oh, hey, this is a great opportunity to advance my career or, oh, wow, this is a an awesome experience that I could go have that I might not have noticed otherwise. You know, whatever it is, it can look a lot of different ways. Yeah. Could even just make you better at noticing parking spots when you're driving around. <laughs> Um, so I'm actually, I'm really excited about this because we are going to be doing a gratitude challenge. We're going to do this seven day gratitude challenge of writing down three things that went well today and why they went well in our patron only Facebook group, which is mm -hmm. only for people who contribute to our Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com slash multiamory. Uh, and if you contribute $5 or more, we have a private members-only Facebook group that no one outside of the group can see that has just a ton of amazing sharing every day. Uh, and I think this will be a really fun exercise for all of us in that group to do together for whoever wants to participate. So we will see you there. And if you want to join, that's patreon.com slash multiamory. Can't wait. All right. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about our present state. Now we're going to talk about the future. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into, into the future. The future. <laughs> so as humans, our default state is actually thinking about the future. Uh, and this is a really cool one where there have been like a, a gazillion or my favorite number, a fucktillion of... A fucktillion studies done about the way that our brains light up and what areas of our brain are activated when we're uh, doing sort of mathematical problems or solving anagrams or something like that. And so there's this huge body of research, right? Like over a thousand studies have been done on this. And, you know, anytime you're doing a study, you need to have a control group. So what you would do is you'd have people in the fMRI machine, you know, the big donut thing, it's measuring their brain and you ask them to do math problems or to solve some sort of logic problems or to do anagrams and you study how their brain works. But then in order to get a sense of how that's different from our default, you also have moments where it's just lie there and don't think about anything, right? Just, just lie there. And they found that every time people would just be lying there, they the same pattern in their brains would light up. And this ended up being named the default circuit was the mm -hmm. name that they gave it. It's just like sort of, oh, that's interesting. Humans by default go to this kind of configuration. And what they found later on is some researchers came along and found that when you ask someone to think about what are you going to do this weekend? Or, you know, what are your plans for tonight? What are you going to have for dinner? Or here's a, a, you know, remember something that's happened in the past and now how are you going to make a decision about the future because of it, right? Like, uh, I did this thing that didn't go well. I, you know, I got rejected on a date. What do you think you could do to improve so that next time that would go better, 
right? That all of those things lit up the same area of the brain, which is about predicting the future. Which yeah, is about and- like creating possible futures, imagining possible futures, and then evaluating them for how would those feel? How would I like that? And that through that, that's how we make decisions. And so our thoughts about the future are way better predictors of what we'll do in the future than what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I mean, I know, like, if I look at a relationship, sometimes I'm like, well, this happened in the past, so it's going to happen again in the future. But our thought processes about the future, I guess, are better predictors of what will actually happen Mm -hmm. than those events in the past. Right. But that so often we just take for granted that that our brain does this and we don't give it a lot of active thought, that we are thinking Mm -hmm. about multiple possible futures and deciding which choices we're going to make because of that. Um, And essentially what we can do is we can train ourselves to be better at this type of future imagining um, and so this kind of future imagining, you know, involves like daydreaming, imagining or planning the future, uh, retrieving personal memories, making meaning out of things. A lot of the stuff that we've already talked about in this episode, also reading fiction actually is a, a mm. big contributor to this. I've also heard other research that reading fiction specifically will help um, children be better in science classes or be better achievers as scientists is reading fiction actually, because Mm. I think because it's engaging this part of the brain, that's sort of projecting Mm. our mind into a state we're not in right now. It could either be, you know, our own future. I'm projecting my mind into tonight when I'm eating spaghetti and seeing how do I feel about that versus projecting myself into the future tonight when I'm eating sushi and going, Ooh, I like how that imagined state feels better. I think I'll have sushi tonight. Right, mm-hmm. And the same thing happens when we're reading fiction, where we're putting ourselves into the minds and into the places and the feelings of the characters in the book that we're reading. Cool. So something I want to clarify about thinking about the future or daydreaming or imagining the future. I know something that I've personally really struggled with in the past is, I know I mentioned earlier in the episode that I've gotten a lot of like learned pessimism. Um, mm-hmm. And I know for myself that very much one of my self-preservation techniques is to imagine a negative outcome, not to an extreme, but like to what I judge to be a realistic extreme um, Mm -hmm. or a realistic extent uh, so that I can already prepare for it ahead of time. And I don't, and I can't get my hopes up essentially. Um, Because I think that what a lot of people fear is that imagining a bunch of possible outcomes for the future could be delusional or it could be setting us up for disappointment later on. Um, And the thing that has helped me with this is realizing that it doesn't mean that I have to just like put my head in the sand and ignore all the possible realistic outcomes and just try to be all Pollyanna about it and then get disappointed later. That for me, it's been more shifting my thinking about the future into just like, it's more that it's like a blank slate, which means It could be anything. It could be such a wide variety of options, good, bad, neutral, you know, an infinite number of possibilities, an infinite number of, uh, I guess, different universes if we want to start getting sci-fi with it. (laughs) Um, Just quantum physics. Yes, like like if we're going to be all quantum about it. Um, 
that it's not about, oh, I need to imagine a future that's super positive or imagine an outcome that's super positive and just kind of delude myself into thinking it's all going to be good, but more of I need to focus on just like the wide spectrum of options that there are. And I think that's what lies at the heart of these studies and these results is that it's not about just like, you know, doing the secret and imagining a positive outcome and then you get it. It's more of really embodying that sense that there are many, many options, some of which could be good potentially. And and I would say as an actual way to improve this for yourself is to take it out of sort of the abstract way that you were talking about, sort of the infiniteness of possibilities, but actually just take some time and think about what are possible other scenarios that could happen in this situation in the future, whether it's about a date or it's about going out to dinner or it's about taking a new job, not to say, I'm going to figure out which one's going to happen, but instead just to exercise that part of your brain of thinking and, you know, try some options that are super out there. It's like, I might take this new job and we'll, you know, meet, Tom Cruise and he'll take me on a spaceship and right. <laughs> I don't know. As <laughs> That's cool a terrible as that example. Um, right. But you know, it could be really out there examples of, Oh, I'll do this. And by walking that way home, I'll buy a lottery ticket and become a millionaire. But then also think about some of the negative ones like Dedeker was saying that, Oh, well mm-hmm. this bad thing could happen. But I'd also be okay because I would figure out this way to be resourceful in that situation and try to find, you know, some other ones that are more realistic and kind of cover that whole spectrum to really train your brain, just like we did with the gratitude, is to train your brain just to think a little bit differently, to see that there are these other options rather than, um, I think so often we get stuck in expecting the same thing to happen that's happened in the past of saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm bad on dates because I've always been bad on dates in the past, for example that that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And I think mostly you just have to be open, just open to new experiences, which we talked about when we were in Tokyo, um, just to, yeah, being like open to whatever comes our way, because that also is a great predictor of creative achievement over the course of one's life. That's mm-hmm. been shown to be the number one predictor of creative achievement, just being open to any new experiences. Which yeah. is great for polyamory, too. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, that openness to just seeing other possibilities, I think, could be really mm-hmm. related to when people are first opening up, or looking at things yeah. like jealousy, or you know, their time management, or how they think about you know, the way that their partner's relationships may go, or the way, that, the way their own relationships may go, that yeah. this openness and understanding that there are a ton of different ways the future can play out, I think could be a really helpful thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to see some studies about that. I actually wrote down some notes of like, I want to do studies about this. Let's, let's put together the multi-emory research branch. Uh-huh, multi-researchery. Multi-researchery. Yeah. So I want to talk now about some criticisms of positive psychology. Now there are a lot of them out there. Uh, Positive psychology, what I like compared to other things like just visualizations or things like that, is that positive psychology actually is a legitimately academically researched field in psychology. It's not just some sort of armchair psychology or pop psych kind of thing people have come up with. This is something that is 
has been actively researched and is still being actively researched, um, you know, in university labs. And that's great. So I think some of the critics just start from like, oh, it's all touchy-feely, positive, woo-woo crap. Kind of like you were saying Hmm. earlier on, Emily, right? It does kind of, because I think a lot of pop psych has taken ideas from this. Mm -hmm. We do get a little bit of that association. And I think those critics are just kind of, you know, oh, well, uh, sorry that you hate positive things. But what I do think are some really apt criticisms is this idea that if you're just looking at positive feelings and positive behaviors, and then looking at the positive outcomes that those will get, you miss out on seeing what are some things that might actually be negative actions or negative feelings that still get positive results, or what might be positive feelings or positive things that achieve negative results. So, uh, two researchers who are named, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to try my best with these names, Todd Cashden and Robert Biswas Diener, I hope that's right. Uh, they wrote a book called The Upside of Your Dark Side. And in this, they both do research in positive psychology, but they criticize this focus on only positive feelings are, you know, the ones worth having. And not that positive psychology actually says that, but to, to be a little bit, um, uh, what's the word? Hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, it's just always focusing on positive everything. That their research looks at what are some potentially negative feelings or negative traits that can actually lead to positive results. Some examples of this would be that anger can make us creative or selfishness can make us brave and that guilt can be a really powerful motivator. Um, there's, you know, lots of other things. Um, depression has been shown to be useful to societies in studies done with uh, chimpanzees. So, right, there's, there's all sorts of different things here and their book covers more of those things. So I think what I appreciate about <clears throat> their take on this is the fact that having a meaningful or having a satisfying life doesn't mean completely disconnecting yourself from any kind of discomfort or pain. Again, when we were talking to Jessica Graham, we talked about the spiritual bypassing thing. And I think that the idea of positive psychology, even though maybe it doesn't have a spiritual basis, it can definitely be tempting to fall into the same pattern of, well, I'm only going to focus on the positive and none of the negative and none of the pain. And I'm just going to kind of, you know, force myself to go through life living that way, which is denying a large part of life, which is the discomfort and the pain. Um, you know, one of my favorite people, uh, Alan Watts, good old Alan Watts or a dubs, as I like to call him. Uh, he all the time says you can't have the yin without the yang as in you can't have the good without the bad. You can't have the wave without the crest that, you know, experiencing discomfort, experiencing pain, experiencing negativity is something that helps us to know when there is positivity or Mm -hmm. when there is happiness or when there is pleasure that we couldn't have just one without the other. Um, Ultimately, I think that we found through all these studies is that by being able to train your focus on the times that are good without completely blocking out the bad, I think that's the important part of this is that without slipping into denial or slipping into suppression of your feelings, but still being able to kind of train your brain to be more in this modality of seeing the good, of seeing the positive, of really, truly soaking it up and feeling it, that that's going to kind of lead to your day-to-day life just feeling better overall. Yeah, I think it's worth 
noting that in the positive psychology research too, we talk about well-being and not happiness. That there is, I think, this common misconception that the goal is to be happy all the time. But as as you were saying, Dedeker, that's not what life is. That if we were happy yeah. all the time, we wouldn't know what happiness is because it would just be neutral. Um, and the other part of that is um, that in looking at things like improving gratitude or optimism rather than happiness, these are things that have actually been, you know, that have research backing them up that these things actually improve quality of life, improve our productivity, improve our success, improve our health, rather than just focusing on this ephemeral thing of happiness or just positivity, mm -hmm. which is, is kind of a hard thing to measure. Because um, like we said, you can't have the good without the bad. Yeah. And for all of you self-knowledge online testy people out there, <laughs> We have the jackpot for you. So AuthenticHappiness.org um, is full of psychological tasks, tests, and it's backed by research to help you learn about yourself and find ways to improve yourself or just kind of see what you want to see and learn a little bit more about yourself, yeah. learn stuff like we did. Yeah, that's um, where we all took that test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, uh, go to AuthenticHappiness.org to find these tests that we are talking about today. Yeah, and you create a profile that is actually, um, you know, anonymously collected for furthering this research as well, which is cool. And they'll occasionally do um, little short-term studies of like, oh, hey, we have a study going on right now if you'd like to participate in it. Uh, so it's a pretty cool thing. And you can go back and access your old results and retake tests and see, you know, track your progress. Um, because, you know, these character strengths like gratitude and optimism are things that you can actually learn. That these aren't mm -hmm. just, it's not like, oh, well, that's my sign. I'm always going to be this way because I'm a cancer, right? <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah, you are. Yeah. So as we're coming toward the end here, we would like to give a shout out to Marianne. Uh, this shout out is that um, to my wife, Marianne, she is the love of my life, has supported me in every step of not just polyamory, but has supported me through really hard life decisions. Aw. We have one more shout out. Puppy, if you've made it to this point, I will let you do that thing you've been begging me to let you do. Text when you've heard this. So Ooh. many questions. Oh my god, I can't wait to like hear know, right? what happened. I, I, I'm like, it could be anything. It puppy, really be sure be to text. Right? It, puppy, you know what? Puppy, will you text you know us too and let us know what happened? Yeah, so these shout-outs are for people who contribute at the $15 a month or greater level on Patreon, in addition to mm -hmm. the private Facebook group and our monthly video discussion group. They also get to have a shout-out on the show. So yeah. thank you for doing that, and I hope that these wonderful lovers appreciate their shout-outs, and I'm really yep. curious about what this is. <laughs> so if you also have a question or a comment that you would like to have played on the show, you can leave us a voicemail at... Six seven eight M U L T I zero five, uh, and you can leave us a voicemail there. You can also send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can send us an email at info at multiamory com, or you can send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon dot com slash multiamory. 
Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.